Hey y'all, welcome to the Functional Fitizio podcast, where we dive deep into fitness, movement, and the complex layers of your health, from micro to the macro. Let's jump on in. Hey y'all, it's JJ from Functional Physio with another podcast. This time I'm excited to welcome Jamie of the Coalition. Jamie, I'm going to let you introduce yourself to describe a little bit about, well, what the Coalition is about and a little bit about you, and then we'll jump into some fun topics. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate being invited to have a chat with you. And um, I'm definitely thrilled to share more about what I do and what's going on in my world. Um, uh, Again, I'm Jamie Lee, and I'm originally from Chapel Hill. And I started the Coalition NC, a fitness and self-defense community. Back, Really, I started at the end of 2018, but we opened up officially in um, 2019. And um, really, it it was just a group of us. We've been training Krav Maga for some years now. And um, I was kind of like nomadic for a while. We were teaching Mm -hmm. outside and training in different areas, uh, parks and community centers and stuff like that. And we had a group of people who really supported us to open an actual studio. So we were, I was training all over the place. Like I was in Fuqua Marina a few times a week. I was going to Raleigh. I've been teaching in Durham. I've taught everywhere, but I was like, you know what? I really want to open up something at home in Chapel Hill. Yeah. Um, you know, but really in the beginning to make it, you know, a little bit more accessible for me, you know, because mm. I was kind of running ragged uh teaching all over the place and then i was really excited to um there were a group of us who were just like hey let's let's give it a shot see how it goes and then you know boom the pandemic hits and then then things kind of get crazy but um but you know miraculously we're still we are still yeah it's pretty amazing for a movement studio to have like weathered it through the pandemic it's always sort of been my metric of like who's gonna make it um so kudos to you and yours that's a pretty big deal and for anyone who's listened, you know what, what question this is going to be, but I always like to start off my podcast with that background, like you talked about, but I'm also curious about like, what did you understand about movement and bodies when you were a child? Like, what was the lens that you grew up with? Um, great question. Um, so I was an only child, so I was encouraged to be very, very active and busy. And so I, mm-hmm. I my first love was dance. Mm. Uh, when- ballerina um and so that was my main focus in terms of movement and physical activities um with ballet tap jazz point the whole bit so um it it was you know uh I loved dance and um I loved performing I love performance but there's also a component to dance that's very much like driven by your parents and driven by um you know how you fare against other people so it was it was a wonderful experience but there was also um, uh, like a little bit of pressure to feel like you had to look a certain way and kind of present a certain way. So that was interesting. I don't feel like it was damaging at all, but it definitely mm-hmm. gave me some interesting perspective uh, growing up. And, um, but I started getting involved in other things. Like I wanted to play basketball. I did a rope skipping competition team. And um, so I just always had something to stay very, very active, which yeah. was great. I consider that a huge um gift to have had that instilled in me at a young age Mm -hmm. Uh, so I feel like life isn't quite right if I don't have something steady that's exercise based and so that I guess guess that's where that seed was planted yeah and do you see like your love of dance in the work you do today sort of like I've definitely heard it before especially like with Krav Maga or BJJ how it can be like dance Um, and do you think that that sort of those things still tie in and show up for you? 
Absolutely. I think that part of what made it possible to kind of um, learn it a little bit quicker, like it's, it's designed to be a, a decently quick learn because um, it's based off of instinctive responses to violence. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that's cool is Krav Maga, kind of the, the people who, who've been developing and putting it together, analyze multiple fighting systems, your BJJs, your boxing, your wrestling, to kind of pick the most accessible techniques um, for your average citizen to pick up. It's still mm-hmm. a thing though. It's still, you have to learn things and you have to, you know, there are techniques and, and ways to do things um, to make them more effective. So I definitely think my dance background and kind of seeing the choreography around it. And also rhythm is life. Rhythm is a big part of fighting and self-defense. So um, it definitely helped me, I think, uh, advance quickly um, having a dance background. Because within yeah. a year of training Krav Maga, I started training to become an instructor. Wow, yeah, that's so amazing. It was, uh, it was it was just the coolest thing. I, I didn't see it in myself. I, the instructors were like, hey, have you thought about this? And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. So how did you make that transition? Like, Um, yeah, I was, so I started, I actually found Krav Maga on um, Living Social, (laughs) like that, that was kind of popular at the time back in 2012. Um, So I was just shopping around for different activities because, you know, life was just stressful. And all of us, sometimes we just, we're just like, I need something, an outlet, because, because everything else is feeling kind of chaotic. So, um, I started taking classes um, in Durham, and there was there were two studios that offered Krav Maga that I knew of in Durham and Raleigh, and so I had the opportunity to train at those locations. And then you know the instructors were like, "Hey, have you ever thought about you know teaching?" And I was like, "No, I hadn't, but I, I could see the patterns in how to teach it." Yeah. So um, there was like a workshop, a women's workshop one day, um, and it was it was a private group, but I thought it was like open to everybody. So I showed up. Hmm. Um, I was a regular student, but this was like a private group. But then the instructor was like, "Hey, why don't you get up in front and lead the warm up and go over punches and stuff like that?" And I was like, "Cool, I'll do it," because <laughs> I, I still again that part of me that loves to perform and be in front of people. Mm-hmm. And that. And so um, ever since that experience, I was like, yeah, sign me up, let's do it, let's go for it. And so I just started little by little, uh, we call it instructor training where you kind of insist, you assist the existing instructors, but you also have a time once a week where you're going through how, like the pedagogy of teaching. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that's extremely important um, with this type of system because there are no rules or boundaries. So we have to be pretty careful with how we train it and teach it. Yeah, that sounds and I'd be curious to like hear you speak more of that because I love I love this idea of like it's an intuitive practice. So it's easier for someone to sort of come off the street and sort of pick it up and like integrate into them. But I do also see like how that leaves it more vulnerable to like anything can fill that intuitive space. So I'd be curious to hear more about like what that pedagogy means to you and what it looks like in your practice. Um, Excellent. So it this and this was really instilled the first time I was able to go to Israel and train there because it we were training with people who taught more than just Krav Maga. They were people who were judo instructors and capoeira instructors and there was mm-hmm. a gentleman that gone to China in the 50s with like a couple of phrases in Chinese to find his sensei. It, I mean, we had such a crazy, awesome group of people. And um, I just remember like the care that they took in making sure we were conscious of our clients in our audience like you should always stay in tune with what they're doing mm-hmm. and monitor and figure out ways to connect and help people build themselves up from within from wherever mm-hmm. they're starting and they're 
different methods to take small pieces and just repeat, 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 and then build upon those small pieces. So if you think of it almost like choreography, if we're doing a choke defense, for example, it's like just starting off with, okay, what is the attack itself? Like, let's understand this element of violence and understand its utility and understand it as a tool and mm -hmm. not just something that's owned by bad people. Yeah. I think that's often a misconception and I think a lost opportunity and missed opportunity to only categorize it as something that bad people use because you may be a wonderful person and have to use it have no choice yeah so like there's so many layers to mm. how to get that message across and so there's the layer of like you know violence is kind of a last resort but if it is a resort it's kind of the only thing you can do at that time to survive in that moment and yeah. so how do we train ourselves to react responsibly, but also to react, period? Because if we haven't been in that realm of fear and violence, then your body naturally will just freeze. And yeah. so how do we teach something that is based on instinct? So it's so interesting to try to pair what we do instinctively and then build upon that to create leverage. And that's what it's all about. It's like in the moment how can we create leverage immediately or at least think of it as disrupting the plan of the person who either attacked us or threatened us or what have you yes. so you know there's a mental piece that we teach there's a physical piece that we teach as well and it sort of sounds like like when you talk about breaking it down into pieces and when you talk about sort of integrating the the attack or like the aggressive motion as like it's not just for quote-unquote bad people that actually sounds like empowerment um which is the physiological opposite of freeze mm -hmm. um and so it's sort of like you're allowing people to practice with these pieces and find their empowerment so that when they come up against them in a real or stimulated scenario they have access to the empowerment rather than the freeze. Um, and so that's actually the strategy that you see in somatic therapy. I don't know if um, any of our listeners are familiar, if you are, but somatics is sort of this new line of cognitive therapy that connects our psychological states with, with physical movements. Wow. So if you feel overwhelmed or like someone's invading your space socially or mentally, you can practice pushing them away from you physically and it creates this sort of feedback loop between conscious and physical yeah. um and that's exactly what you've described right in a in a slightly like different lens of more stepwise but let's break it down into parts let's get your nervous system online so that you feel empowered and then you don't have to like freak out when that system shows up in the real world exactly Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. Mm. That's amazing. Um, and that's not an easy thing to do, right? right? It's sort of like to break movements down into parts. And I really see how the choreography piece is perfect because choreography is like, break it down into parts. Um, and I bet that makes it a lot easier for people to pick up teachings from you. Um, Cause like I've gone to boxing classes and then they're like, all right, we're going to do this big flow. Boom, boom, boom. And I'm like, hold on, like, that's a bunch of combined movements, and you want me to do all of that in one go? Like, no way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, if, if we start with, like, what do your feet do? How do you mm -hmm. rotate your body? How do you recruit power from the ground up? Mm -hmm. Like, there are all these 
different principles to even just throwing a punch, which yeah. is why the mental piece is so important and that connection is so important because we want to control our movement as well. We want to be responsible for these mm -hmm. decisions. I want to train someone to just instinctively elbow somebody right in the face for saying, you know, tapping you on the shoulder, say, hey, you drop your keys because yeah. it's touch and you're like, oh my gosh, I've been training. I got to do something. Yeah. It's like no it's more than just on switch whenever. It's about, you know, developing an on switch, developing a skill, but also responsible for that skill. So the cerebral yeah. part of it is so key because if you're not tapped into what you're doing and your body's kind of moving ahead of your brain, sometimes it feels like yeah. um, there could be, you know, more danger that occurs, yeah. injury, you know, especially in class. Mm -hmm. You could hurt someone, right? And Absolutely. it's like, that's the importance of discernment. And I totally want to advocate that like, yeah, as you learn these skills, there's a responsibility to like you manage the fact that you can do damage. Exactly. Um, so I, yeah, I just, I really see how that makes it so much more accessible because you're starting with those smaller pieces. And I love that. I love that movement is accessible and that you're, you're teaching people to move. Cause I never, want someone to just go into movement practice and do this thing and not know why exactly. it sounds like you really get into the why absolutely absolutely it's absolutely critical because you know it's, it's we have to acknowledge it's chapel hill it's not like we're in the <laughs> big streets of you know compton or something like that <laughs> um not even in, you know apologies if anybody's offended by the compton reference but <laughs> but um but you know what I mean? It's just like, it's not an area where it's like known for being violent. Doesn't yeah. mean violence doesn't occur. It's yeah. just not something that we necessarily carry 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, you have to respect the fact that we're dealing with a difficult topic, something that's not mm -hmm. necessarily a favorite topic to have to delve into, mm -hmm. but I consider it almost like swimming. I mean, it's something you want to have, you, you need the tool when you need it. And so, yeah. you know, when you're in the midst of violence, like not having that tool is detrimental. If you end up in a situation where you sink or swim, you'd much rather be able to swim. And so the piece about, you know, being responsible for your movement and your technique is, is everything um, in two ways. Number one, for your partner in class, because since there are no rules on what we can do to damage someone, we mm -hmm. avoid vulnerable targets on any human. We yeah. all have how big or small have vulnerable targets. So we try to exploit that right away. Again, mm -hmm. to create an opportunity, hopefully to run. Because <laughs> I tell people my favorite defense is to get the heck out of there mm -hmm. and hopefully you have to engage. Yeah. But if you do have to engage, you know, what are some simple tools that can help empower you and help change the course or again change their plan? And in class, we do it carefully so we don't hurt each other, but we also don't want to lose out on the instinct to actually make that contact. So if we're going for eyes or throat or what have you, we don't actually physically touch those areas, but we also don't want to lose sight of the fact and make it a habit to always avoid contact. So it's an interesting balance that yeah. we're always trying to achieve where, you know, I encourage people just to work at their pace individually. But, um, you know, we, we challenge each other and we say, okay, if you're willing to take some more impact and take some more, you know, hit, then, then let's go there. Let's get used to, and in a way, desensitize ourselves from the shock of being physically hit. Yeah. Um, and so again, in small pieces, we, we dive into that. It's not just about understanding the offensive part of it. Mm -hmm. You need to respect the defensive part of it. And the fact that you might have to take a hit or you yeah. might 
already be injured in the process. Yes. So I always say, you know, you're responsible for what you do to another human being, whether it's in class or whether it's out in the streets, it's still a human being. Yeah. Because a human being commits a violent act doesn't make them not like all of a sudden not a human. It's just, you know, there are a lot of damaged humans. And so we have to, you know, honor and respect the fact that if we do use violence, we're still responsible for that violence and the outcome because we have to live with that. It's not even just a legal matter. Is what you have to live with and, and go to sleep at night with. So yeah. And I love the phrase hurt people hurt people. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. But absolutely. something I want to circle back to that I really appreciate that you said is you specified if you feel comfortable with this, mm-hmm. you want to take more impact. Mm-hmm. Because absolutely. I see this all the time in, in contact improv clans like classes or in sort of like boxing classes of like, here's the drill, mm-hmm. right? do this thing. And it's like, well, what if you don't want to take impact that day? What if you want to change how you take impact? What if you want to take less or more? Um, and a lot of people are like, well, no, like I showed up to this class. I like consented to this thing. No consent is, is conscious, especially with bodies and especially with like impact or injury and exercising that in a container with, with people that are safe is going to make it so much easier for you to recognize when it's not okay. Exactly. Um, exactly. And it's going to build your tolerance to it mm-hmm. better if you're able to listen to that rather than overriding. Um, and so I think that that's a really important thing to highlight to listeners is you're like, no, nah, I don't want to go to a Krav Maga class because I don't want to get hit or like I have this thing around my neck. And it's like, well, perfect, actually. Mm-hmm. These are the people that are going to honor that consent and honor those boundaries um, yeah. and will help you work with it, just like you said. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was just talking to some clients yesterday. They, the family started training and the dad like injured himself. And I said, you know, don't feel like you need to shy away from coming to class if you're injured because, and it it happened outside of the studio because the point is people, if they perceive you as vulnerable, that's more incentive to try to take advantage of you. So Mm -hmm. we actually encourage coming in and working through the sense of being injured, but you can still fight back because we're building from that premise. Like we're, we don't train to initiate violence. We're responding to it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're not asking for the situation. If we could have avoided it, we would have at all costs. But if we cannot avoid it, um, it's a matter of like, it, for example, if we're learning how to punch, if you hold that pad against your body, it's not like you're taking the full brunt of that punch, but you feel the impact, you feel it, you know, started so we build from there and i always tell people like it's your training you are the one voluntarily coming here and spending time here it makes zero sense for you to leave more damaged because the safest places in the studio there are not a lot of people who are trying to come and start stuff inside of a martial arts gym or krav maga studio Uh it's what happens outside of the studio in your daily life so it makes no sense for me to encourage anything that's going to compromise the optimization of our physical selves in the real world. Um, yeah. So injuries, like, no, thank you. I, I'm not interested in taking the, so much risk, but I also recognize there's some people who come specifically to feel impact and hit and go, mm-hmm. and, and I'm like, great. If that's where you are, just make sure you're in agreement with your partner. Mm-hmm. And that's why 
everything we do starts off completely dry, meaning we don't make any physical contact when we're starting to break down the pieces. Mm. We only make contact once we have a full understanding of what both parties are doing, the offensive piece and the defensive piece. Yeah. Um, and then we just build from there. And I, you know, I have clients who, you know, there's a mom who comes with her children. One of them is like nine years old. So, and I'm like all about it, as long as we can do it safely. Mm-hmm. I have a client who is wheelchair bound and she's had MS for 30 years. And so she has some limitations, but her spirit and her dedication is through the roof. So of course I'm gonna help her. And of course, somebody might perceive her as an easy target. So it's more impactful for someone like that. And so I'm big on making sure people feel like they're coming into a safe space, but at the same time, a space where we're trying to empower one another to be super tough. (laughs) Yeah. And accessibility. Like, I can't think of the last time that I went to a Krav Maga gym and they're like, yeah, someone in a wheelchair comes here or someone with this condition comes here. Like most of the time it's like you see people that are like really ripped or very like don't have any complications. Um, And so accessibility is huge for like to bring kids and parents and different body types. So I think that's like a really big piece to demonstrate or like emphasizes that just because you have injuries or complex conditions doesn't mean that you can't train yourself and protect yourself. Um, And that sort of ties into like, it sounds like that you have a lot, like you're, you support everyone in being empowered, which I love, but is there a particular like niche or group of people that you particularly love working with or that you're cultivating uh, a community with? That's a great question. Uh, in the beginning, well, yeah, I, I have a problem with that. I want to help everybody. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> I don't care background or whatever. I just want, you know, it changed my life. So I'm just like, the more the merrier, whoever I can reach and help, that's what I want to do. Um, it, it actually has evolved. I kind of organically just receive who I'm lucky enough to receive. Um, I consider everybody who comes in and feels like they have an epiphany with their movement or what they can do. That's just such a huge win. Um, And so over in the beginning, um, which is common with a lot of trainers, we like are going for just gassing people. We want people to break a sweat. We want people to, you know, have this killer workout. And so I remember in the beginning days, I would look and all my, all, almost all of my classes were all men, <laughs> which was awesome. I was like, great. And, um, and then it was kind of like half and half and things have started to evolve where I've been focusing more on you know, women, just because I think the university is around the corner. There are more sorority groups reaching out. Yeah. Um, I was an academic counselor for almost a decade. So I worked with a lot of undergrads and young people who were just, you know, at such a pivotal point in life, you know, where you have a little bit of freedom, but not totally. And then you have these opportunities that could possibly come about and you're in a kind of unique environment that gives you a false sense of security at times. But um, yeah. uh, what, what changed everything was when I was academic counselor, there were two very high profile cases um, that took place. There was, you know, Eve Carson and Faith Hedgepath. And yeah. it, it was really devastating. And working with the youngsters, like, um, and there was also a professor who was, um, who lost his life during that time. Um, just a lot of tragedy. And I know, you know, there's, there's always stuff, but that, that particular span seemed to be mm-hmm. um, just worse than usual. And watching the kids go through that. And, and, you know, some of the ones I worked with were, pretty intimately connected to them, um, either worked with them closely or, you know, there were some who were kind of there the night of some of the incidents. So it, it's, it was just a, a very heavy time. 
Um, and so I think about that every time I train people, you know, it, who's to say, who knows what some vigilance training could have done. Yeah. Um, I'm not one to be like, oh, they would have been fine. That's not what I'm saying. But it, again, it's just like when the university, you know, tried to implement everybody having to learn how to swim, it took a tragedy to lead to, you know, administrators wanting to encourage almost like a mandatory, you know, requirement to be able to swim, which mm -hmm. Um, it, it doesn't come without some controversy, but this is exactly right. I mean, you had a, a, I don't know if it was a school president or someone at the time who had a child who was an undergrad who, who passed away because they drowned. And it's like, you know, what could have changed? What could have been different had they just had the skill or somebody basic skills. skill, right? Yeah. So, um, so I, I think it's kind of shifted where, you know, the studio, the clients are kind of 50, 50, but I definitely feel like the young ladies pull up my heartstrings um, because of, you know, I hate the, I don't want to be grim, but you know, in terms of assault and stuff like that, that happens on campus, it can be quite prevalent, unfortunately. Um, mm -hmm. And I tell, you know, I had, I'll never forget one of my first classes, there was a woman who came in and uh, it was like just after the warm-up, and we started, you know, working up to hitting the pads. And as soon as we got to that point, she was like, she just was like, I gotta go. I, there's no way I can physically hit someone. I'm southern. I'm too polite. And I was like, oh. what? <laughs> you know. But it, it gave me some real perspective. It, I don't have any judgment. I'm just like, that's such an interesting perspective to have. Like, I'm too polite to fight back. Oh, that's and, my grandma. That's my yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying? And there's, there's a, a, a school of mentality that's like that. And I, I, I get where it comes from. And especially in the South, we, we are taught to be pretty polite. But mm -hmm. I'm like, I'd much rather have a moment where I'm impolite or maybe perceived as disrespectful and acknowledge something that doesn't feel right yeah. uh, or like that as opposed to being polite and allowing for you know something to happen that, that could have been prevented. So and I think all those things. That, yeah, yeah, so I think a lot of things. Yeah. But, yeah. And that's the empowerment piece there too, of like, where I like definitely grew up in a female body. My grandma grew up in like Wadesboro, Piedmont, North Carolina. And she'd always say to me, like, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it. Don't say yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and very much had this perspective of like, no, no, you just need to sit with your own discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, and as I've gotten older, I've realized that's the, the freeze response right that's that shutdown of like I'm just gonna push all my things down and it also violates like my own boundaries right I'm worrying about taking care of someone else rather than taking care of me that's a very big southern thing mm -hmm. um and if you have opinions about the south uh, and like feel free to listeners you can you can dig on me if you want but I, I grew up here this is how this has been my experience um and I think that it's been like, it makes people uncomfortable when I say like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that thing, even if it makes you more comfortable. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you can't fight back because it's not polite mm -hmm. is such a, like, it's also pol impolite for someone to be aggressive to you. <laughs> so yeah, Right, right. Yeah, um, yeah. We're, we're beyond the realms of politeness here and uh, more into the realms of like, you're allowed to have boundaries. Absolutely. And you're allowed to fight back. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And it's not to dog, you know, our culture and heritage. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to be polite and I'm glad to be, <laughs> um, I, I prefer it. That's for sure. Um, but I also, you know, when I first started training, one of the key conversations I had that changed my perspective, I was asking my trainer about, um, 
you know, sexual assault. And I was like, you know, when I was really struggling with when I would decide to use violence. And when we talk about using violence, this isn't like, let me just hurt you. Let me just push you. Let me just, we're talking about injuring and incapacitating someone. I want to be very clear about that. Like if someone is affecting you in a way that could be lethal, you've got to exceed that level of violence in response if you want to survive. I mean, we don't, we don't try to match it. We try to exceed it. And mm. it doesn't mean like exceed it by leaps and bounds. I mean, we know that there's certain legalities and ramifications for your actions, but you still need to exceed it. We can't just think yeah. about getting halfway up to that level of violence or-, or You need to be able to win. You've got to be able to win. It's about the winner. It's not about the good guy, the bad guy. It's about who wins in that situation. And this can be a very bitter pill to swallow. And yeah. I asked my instructor at the time, this is why I didn't mind working with an instructor who's kind of abrasive and aggressive. And he told me, he was like, I, I have chosen, I cannot live, I've decided with being passive in an assault situation. I've decided is I'm going to fight until one of us succumbs to this fight period. That's just, the, mm-hmm. he said, that's the decision I've made. And he's like, you have to make that decision for yourself. And I really appreciated that because number one, it put it still back on me and my responsibility mm-hmm. because there's something they're incredibly noble and incredibly powerful also to say, I know I can mentally survive this. I can go with this flow with this hope that mo- I'm more likely to come out of this alive if I'm compliant than not. We know statistically it doesn't usually work that way, but in the moment, we don't really know how we're gonna react unless we've kind of gone there and practiced and, and created the scenario. Yeah. So, um, and even that isn't a guarantee, but to, you have to make the decision for yourself. What is my absolute boundary? What am I not willing to tolerate before mm-hmm. I'm willing to make that sacrifice, whether I'm sacrificing you, your, you know, health and physical well-being so that I can survive and if you've decided like living with the assault is not something that I want to survive with I'm going to fight that's a big that's a big decision and it's a significant decision because there are plenty of people who may just want to assault and move on Mm -hmm. and so some people will say hey I can survive that I can take it I'd rather do that than cause the physical harm yeah that's your choice yeah. I just know for me, I've made that decision. I had that conversation with myself. I continue to have the conversation with myself. What is my boundary to keep myself protected? And even more importantly, my loved ones. But I always encourage people to take that personal responsibility and that personal stance and make that decision and then figure out how best to empower yourself within that decision. Mm-hmm. So if you're like, okay, I know I don't want to delve into a physical fight, then what are some alternatives? What do you do? How do you keep yourself safe if you don't want to physically fight um you just may not have a choice you may not have a choice and if you don't have a choice what are you willing to do are you willing to fight to the point where somebody's injured or incapacitated you really Mm -hmm. do consciously go there and so i'm not arbitrary with how we train i'm like let's stop think about it pause consider and then move forward and it's not like every single class we stop for 10 minutes and think about that but it's just like i just just try to incorporate that those reminders throughout yeah it's in the culture of the gym and sort of what we've been circling around as we've talked is is trauma right and trauma informed combat so we're talking about the preventative aspect right of sort of like how can we use this as a tool to either prevent or to help us survive these conditions and it's like it's real it's part of our lives um but I have, so I'll put a trigger warning in the show notes for anyone. 
Um, but I'm curious about the after. Mm -hmm. So if someone shows up to you and they've had a traumatizing experience, whether it be from sort of like being like physical abuse when they were a kid or like being beat up on the street or like sexual assault, how do you manage that when someone walks into your gym? Excellent question. So um, I actually had a lot of experience with this. Um, I was very fortunate to be connected with a client who was um, she was homebound because she was assaulted in her home. Um, it's been over 10 years now um, and it was in a different state, but it was in the middle of the day, um, like three or four o'clock, beautiful day. She's on the phone with a neighbor and just, just like that, two men um, broke into her home. Um, they tied her up, they had knives, you know, it, it, was, it was traumatic, um, needless to say, uh, but she survived and um, she decided to use this type of training to work through the trauma. So as I said before, she was homebound, like she would not leave her house. They, they had moved to North Carolina after that, mm -hmm. kind of start, uh, she and her husband, to start lives over. She um, started, you know, keeping dogs in the house, like uh, these gorgeous German shepherds that were trained. And so she just little by little put things in place to make her feel safer, um, changed her habits, you know, but it was it was so traumatic that she she was getting triggered a lot. Um, had severe PTSD, would have periods where she just didn't even recall like large periods of time. Like she just mentally would just be not present. Um, and so when I started working with her, I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to help? I don't know if I'm equipped for this. And they were like, look, just, just trust and just be yourself and just, just go from there. Um, so I, I would, I trained her in her home for years and, um, amazingly, she, she now she can drive, she will leave home. She will drive to the Krav studio in Raleigh and train there, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, because that took years of baby, baby steps, but she used the training as kind of exposure therapy. And of, clearly she was in therapy and all that kind of stuff, but she also said, you know what, beyond just being in therapy, I need to make myself powerful again. I need to figure out a way to like go there and revisit that physical space without having the trauma replay and then yeah. go blank. Yep. So it took several exposures. It took, you know, like their, their ground techniques that we do um, in level one, which I love about Krav Maga level one, we're not grappling just yet. Cause that can be so overwhelming. Somebody like, like literally a, just a wrestling fight. That's kind of what, what grappling is like. Mm -hmm. And so, before we grapple, we just figure out like, okay, we fell. How do we prevent someone from getting on top of us? We can kick, we can fight back and hopefully get up safely. Well, for her, you know, once we got into, she was able to complete the level one curriculum. She was able to do a belt test, which was fantastic. And, um, you know, carefully curated, carefully prepared with, you know, a partner who understood it was a private test, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. So she did an amazing job getting through that. And so once it was time to get into level two, then grappling, that was a humongous trigger. Mm -hmm. So, you know, getting to the point where she learned how to throw punches and kicks was empowering. But then when it's time to deal with somebody on top of you, which, you know, took her back to that, that, that horrible event, right? Yes. She was like, you know what? We just need to do it. She's like, I know I'm probably going to have some moments where I'm going to have to collect myself, but let's do it anyway. She's like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to be on the ground. We can, you know, we started off, I just like put a towel on top of her 
just something on top and just without a person. Let's just start there, putting something physically on top of you. Let's see how we are. And then, you know, next session is like, okay, now I'm going to, you know, be next to you looking like I'm going to choke or something like that. So uh-huh. we just build it piece by piece by piece again, which is so marvelous about the system is they train us to be that way. Yeah. And so all it did was, you know, encourage me to just be even more meticulous about that. So long story short with exposure therapy and just taking bits and pieces. And also there were other trainers that came in to help other male instructors because she was like, okay, I know I can handle a female instructor. Might take a while to handle a male instructor, but then over time she was able to work with a male instructor and even working through the the physical appearance of the attackers. Like, okay, someone who looks like that, I can be around them without being triggered. But it took baby steps and for someone who didn't get to know her or work with her, some folks saw that as offensive. It was like, how could you think everybody's bad who looks like that just because these people, it's like, you can't judge anybody's trauma. They, it's her trauma, it's her journey. We will take the, I want her to be honest about that. And if yeah. a certain appearance is a trigger, then let's work through it. it. It's not about being mad because she feels that way. It's like, she's trying to grow from that. Mm-hmm. So all the more reason to be empathetic and sympathetic and and listen and hear and, and figure out how we can come together to, to uh, work through the trauma. Yeah. And that sounds, yep. yeah, that sounds oh, amazing. Yeah. Um, so. it was incredible experience. She's my shero. <laughs> she <laughs> yeah. Really yeah. I've just like, well, she made all of those choices, right? She stepped in, but you gave her the opportunity to make those choices and you could scale it to what she could tolerate, which is when it comes to sort of somatic trauma recovery, it has to be within that window of tolerance. You can't blow past it or it becomes re-traumatizing. Yes. Um, and I know it might be hard for some people to be like, wow, it took years. And it's like, yeah, uh, trauma recovery m- takes years and it takes time. Um, but what I love is the success that you found with her. Um, those are big, big steps. And I just... I like that it's digestible. A lot of people think therapy is like, all right, I'm going to start with facing all of my demons. And it's like, no, we might get there at the very end, but like, we're going to start with the smaller, more practical things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No rush at all. I mean, she, she, she taught me so much and she invited me like, and she, it, it wasn't just the mental. I mean, she was left with physical scars Yeah. and even working through, you know, how to punch with, with, you know, cuts and she, and we do, you know, weapons training. I mean, we, we disarm knives and guns from people in training. So for her to even do that was a, a whole other level of trauma. And it helped mm-hmm. even as an instructor, but also help other instructors because sometimes we take for granted the way we have to explain violence in class at times for people who haven't been exposed to violence. But I had to remind, like I had several hours worth of conversation with another instructor um, who had no clue about this. And to, to his defense, I mean, he wouldn't have any clue. It, it, it's not like he was being neglectful by any means. He's an excellent instructor. But the first time she took a group class with him, and it was an advanced class. So by this time, she was several years in, has done several belt tests, and had really overcome a ton. But a big hurdle was also knife defense. You know, one, And they, we, we work with fake tools, but still that visual piece was extremely triggering. And when he uh, was normally when we teach weapons defense, we take time to explain the weapon. 
like understanding that we treat a knife differently from a gun because a knife doesn't run out of ammunition um, and, and a gun does. And so there are different ways to disarm depending on the tool. Yeah. And um, it, so we, we usually spend time describing there, you know, sometimes you have a knife that's one side is sharp, sometimes both sides are sharp, sometimes they have different shapes and different this and different that. And the amount of time spent on that was just like trigger, 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 trigger. <laughs> so later on, like she, so she just went blank that whole session. She doesn't remember anything. And it gave us such a great opportunity to have a discussion as instructors. I said, look, you don't have to really convince people that guns and knives are dangerous. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time on that. I think people come because they already know those things are dangerous and they don't know how to deal with them. So it shifted some of the way we, some of the tone and it really takes someone who's been there to help you learn that because it sometimes is skipped because we're so busy trying to help people understand violence coming from like no violence yeah we don't always have a great opportunity to dive in with someone who has trauma because they're not likely to come to a group class not right out the gate working with people privately which i still do and i do that more than anything it helps me get to know the individual and what the individual is there to learn or glean from the training and the techniques. It's not always to go fight. Sometimes it's just to overcome your own personal struggles. Sometimes it's just to build your confidence. Sometimes people literally just want to get in shape and they'd like to hit stuff. I mean, whatever people's dirty, I'm all about it. But when we worked with her and I got a chance to talk to other instructors, I said, look, sometimes you don't have to spend 10 minutes to talk about how dangerous a weapon is. People know. Sometimes you need to focus on what do you want your class to leave with in terms of principles, in terms of their mindset, their, their overall feeling? And I never want people to leave a session feeling defeated. I never want people to leave a session feeling discouraged because that's not gonna empower you in a moment when you need it. I'm like, there's something powerful about the instincts you already have. We have incredible instincts to survive. Otherwise we wouldn't be here. So there's a there's an instinct base that I want people to never lose sight of. So I'm like, even if your elbow is supposed to look like this, or you're supposed to plug like this, or you're supposed to kick like this, at the end of the day, don't worry about, like, like make sure you don't lose your instincts. That's what I'm trying to say. Don't lose your instinctive thought to run or to flee or to hit or to go or to do this. We just try to enhance it. Yeah. And so we can't enhance it if we put you so deep into fear, we can't get you back out of it. Mm -hmm. So there's like, okay, we got to acknowledge there's fear, but the rest of the class needs to be committed to overcoming it step by step. And I don't want anybody to leave a session thinking, well, heck, I'm just done for if there's a knife involved. No, there's definitely things you can do and you can survive it. The tone should be focused on, yeah, you had to deal with the trauma of the knife, but you're still here to tell the story. You survived it. That means you're an example for other people to not just think doom, gloom, I'm done. There's a knife or doom, gloom, I'm done. There's a gun. You can still be stabbed. You can still be shot and you can still survive. People have done it. People do it. And so it's, it's a delicate balance at times, but that experience with her changed the whole game, changed the whole game for me. Amazing. And it's sort of, I think this whole podcast has sort of been like, what do you say to someone who might be intimidated by starting combat of just like, it's a skill, right? Like swimming is a super critical skill that'll help keep you alive. And the same thing for, for Krav Maga. And it's like, okay, but if I have PTSD, well, there are plenty of ways to work through that. Um, and then it's like, well, I more want to just get fit. Well, come in and wail on stuff because boxing and Krav Maga are great cardio. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So 
I love the accessibility of the coalition and of you as a, as a coach for like across all of those layers of not just like the physical space and uh, across different body types, but the emotional and physical accessibility and the social accessibility. So I think that's pretty unique and pretty special. Um, I love that. (laughs) Yeah. And so if anyone listening to this podcast were curious about you, where could they find you? Great question. Um, I have a website, the coalition NC, like North Carolina.com, www.thecoalitionnc.com. Um, so we're, so we specialize in Krav Maga, K-R-A-V-M-A-G-A, which is an Israeli-based fighting system. Um, so if you type in like Krav Maga Chapel Hill, that might get you to us as well at the coalition NC is a, 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 too much of a, a jumble. <laughs> but um, the website is a great way to find me. Also, our studio is located it's next to Staples on Franklin Street. So if you're facing Staples to the left is um, a yoga studio. Next to that is the Coalition mm-hmm. um, in between Eastgate Shopping Center and Whole Foods Shopping Center in that area. So sometimes the GPS is a little tad bit off by a, a street. So um, if you see Staples, that's the best way to find us. We're just yeah. It's like, I usually think of it as like Staples is on the right, gas station is on the left, and you yes. just keep going in between. Exactly. Boom. Bingo. That's a better way. Look, I need to practice that. That's a way better way to, thank you, JJ. That's <laughs> well, and I'll definitely put that website and that address in the show notes. So if people want to find you or learn more, it'll be there. But thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with me today. I really appreciate it. This was thank lovely. You. Thank you. What a, it was such an honor and a privilege. So I really appreciate you thinking of me. Thank you. All righty. Thanks, y'all. Take care. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to the Functional Physio Podcast. We hope that you found it helpful. For each podcast, we'll include show notes. So if you're curious about a reference of what we mentioned, feel free to refer to the literature and references there. We hope this episode helped you think about the way you move and how your body is your ally as you navigate this life. Any thoughts about our podcast? Shoot me an email at jjfunctionalphysiopt.com or follow us on Instagram. If you're curious about working with us or who we are, check us out at functionalphysiopt.com. Thanks so much.